Welcome to another episode of Storyteller Studio, where we're gathering our lives through genuine conversations and gladly sharing them with folks around the world. As radio announcers, Liz and Tim believe there's something very special about being behind a microphone and letting their hair down. Sometimes people just need a reason to enjoy each other, either again or for the very first time. And we found plenty of others who feel the same. From artists, sports figures, and manufacturers, to filmmakers, authors, and media types, we all may know bits and pieces about a person, but there's always something more. So while we grab our headphones and turn up the mics, it's your chance to eavesdrop on yet another episode of Storyteller's Studio. Good afternoon and welcome back to Storyteller Studio. We are recording today in Rockford, Illinois at the Edgebrook Center. And this fellow sort of showed up on my radar in the most unusual way. Jeff Swamberg. I never thought that I would be across the table from you again, ever. Nor me either. Isn't it weird? Yes. I really sort of describe my life as God sees it as a chess board. To a certain degree... He says, you know, those people have not crossed paths in a very long time. So So true. Let's find a reason to have those guys cross paths again. And Janet McGregor happened to be our reason with what she had in her hand, which we'll get to. And I picked up the phone and here you sit. And I'm so lucky, so glad to be here. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I got a feeling that uh, you're going to have a lot of stories for us. And you are the reason that we really should print on a t-shirt, you think you know somebody, but there's always something else. (laughs) Somebody's always there. That's right. That's very true. Let me set this up a little bit. Jeff Swanberg was my customer at Skyward Promotions for easily 25 plus years when he worked at the Rockford Business College. I distinctly remember I went in this one Monday morning for some kind of an appointment that we were working on a project And I just haphazardly said, hey, Jeff, how was your weekend? And you said, well, you know, when you hang around David Letterman and Paul Newman, it's a pretty good weekend. And I looked at you like you had three heads and I was like, what are you talking about? And tell me what you told me back then as to why you're hanging out with those two guys. Well, for a long time, for 13 years, I worked with Champ Car, which was the uh, automobile racing segment that uh, delivers people to the Indy 500. And as a worker there, I was a technical assistant. And one of my jobs when I arrived at the track, I was always assigned a new car and a new driver. And that particular year, I happened to be assigned to Paul Newman, uh, who owned a racing team, and uh, his driver, Sebastian Bourdais, who incidentally won the championship that year. So I was I was in high cotton, as my brother would say. Wow. And um, I was in the the pits uh, working uh, for Newman's team, and uh, David Letterman was right across from me, and I was blocking the TV station that carried all parts of the race. Well, David Letterman owns another team. Uh, So I was with David Letterman and uh, Paul Newman that weekend, and it was like being stuck between... uh, Two cathedrals. It was yeah. It was really great. I understood the whole works. Did they spend a lot of time in their pits, or would that just be sort of in the beginning? Now Newman spends the entire race 
and the entire practice sessions in the pit because he's a national championship driver himself for Sports Car Club of America. Oh. And he was the oldest person to complete uh, laps at the Daytona uh, 500 that was uh, a couple of years ago when he did that. So before they, he passed away. So they get it. It's not just putting out the money and being an owner. They get it. And of course, yeah. David Letterman's from Indianapolis anyway. Right. You know, he's, so he's got that past. He's been a car lover forever. Wow. What specifically was your job? My job was to see that nobody touched the car uh, before or after the weigh-ins and things like that. So they couldn't uh, alter the, the weight of it, which would be a violation of the code. They uh, always uh, asked me to be next to the car after the race to make sure nobody touched it or fooled with it, and I was the one that was in charge of making sure that it was placed in the right areas both before and after the race. Wow. It it seems like one time you told me that you were sort of like the OSHA of the Indy 500 because, and and again, I'm going to get this wrong because, you know, we haven't seen each other in a very long time. But as my memory serves, it seems like the track supplies certain amount of things, and then the team can bring in certain amount of things. And wasn't it part of your job to make sure that there was no more or no less on either time and That's either right. team? And that everything was in the places it should be. Yeah. Uh, and then go down a big checklist before the race started to make sure that all the items were there, that the fire equipment was there that the uh, number of pitmen over the wall didn't exceed so much uh, for every pit stop, and uh, I monitored all those situations. So did you consider yourself in a dangerous spot at times? No. uh, There was a limited amount of danger. About the only danger I faced was after uh, the Newman's man won the the title (laughs) and I had to be next to his car in the pits after the race and avoid the champagne that was bubbling. And by that, uh, my wife never went to a race in all the years I did it, 13 years, uh, from Montreal to Laguna Beach, uh, all over the United States. So you're not working for necessarily the Indy 500 location. You're working for a company that takes care of... All the drivers, all the races. Wow. And all of these races took place, Toronto, uh, Montreal... Uh, and then, of course, the street race in Laguna, Road America. I lived at Road America for all wow. those years. What got you into it to begin with? You said you did it 13 years? Yeah, I did it for 13 years. How does, how does somebody fall into something like that? Well, my brother read an article in one of our newsletters from the Sports Car Club of America, and it said they needed some volunteers for Road America. Volunteers? Volunteers. <laughs> and uh, I said, why not? Let's do it. So we sent in our credentials, and I've been a, a car guy all my life. I had a 29 Ford with a 371 old J2 engine in it. Just sold my Porsche a few years ago. I had that for 21 years. Always a car guy, crew chief on another uh, car that was from Rockton, Illinois, uh, run by Robert. And uh, Robert and I went all over the Midwest racing his car. So I had a lot of experience with cars and things. Did you get accepted the first time that you yes, put your I did. Hat, did you really? Right. And so... Uh, but you were a la- low man on the totem low pole. Low man on the totem yeah, pole. Yeah, The one who's got to be there at 6 in the morning <laughs> uh, to paint the, the pit lanes uh, for the spots where the drivers come in for their fuel and everything. Wow. And uh, doing that throughout the day and picking up all the paint and tools and tires at night. 
and so you're just a, a natural uh, for the, the time spent. Wow. I loved it. Was it always a volunteer position? It was always a volunteer position. Man. Um, but I had fun doing it. And, and what a passion. And what a passion is right, yeah. Going, uh, nothing like being at the Formula One track in Montreal, walking through the pits there. Did you have a favorite location and a worse location? Like, I'd rather not go there again. I don't think I had any worse locations. I always wanted to be wherever the team was going to be. Okay. And it was a different assignment every time I went, so I got to meet a lot of people. Is Indy the jewel crown? Indy is the the jewel crown, yeah. Okay, okay. But all those around it. You know, I I didn't really have that much of an interest. And again, this can apply to hockey. It can apply to basketball. When you have a personal tie to something, then all of a sudden you're going to show a little bit more interest. You know, you have the Rockford Speedway and you've got the NASCARs and all that. And okay, but but Indy was so foreign to me until Danica Patrick. Right. Danica Patrick and her family lived like two miles north of me in Roscoe. Yeah. Her parents were customers of mine for a very long time. Mm Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden you've got my interest. Right. And of course, you remember when Danica was in the Indy, they spent a lot of time uh, showing Bev's reaction, her mother. Right. Uh, sort of like they did at the Kansas City Chiefs game with uh, Taylor Swift being up in the suite. Yeah. You, know, you spend more camera shots on her than right. anything else. And I and I got that bug at that point. It's like, God, this is really cool. But I just didn't, I didn't have the connection before. Yeah. And I can remember when I was sitting in uh, Bev's office, and they, her and TJ. Um, Danica's father had sort of a shared office and TJ was running around like a madman with whatever he was doing with suppliers or customers or whatever the case may be. They had a glass company. So if you had a business that needed a gigantic uh, storefront replaced or a door or something like that, uh, they would come in and replace it and then take the old stuff away. That's what they did for years and years and years. So I'm sitting with my back to the door, and you know, Bev and I are discussing whatever project we've got going on, and these two girls walk in in bikinis, basically, middle of the summer, and it was Danica Patrick, who was probably 16, I would think, mm-hmm. and her little sister, Brooke, who was probably 13 or 14, right. and they were sweating like you could not believe because it was their job, their summer job to separate the glass from the aluminum when they brought those broken scraps back from the customers. I remember her saying, well, you know, Bev says, well, she's not going to be here very long, so we need to make the use out of her being here as a worker because she's going to head back to England. Well, then there was the whole big conversation. Of course, she's yeah. driving her Formula Ford over in England. That's right. Getting her lessons. Yes, because as, as I understood, she couldn't hear. She was too young. Mm-hmm. Is that why they did that? I think that's one of the reasons. Then she just developed her skills as a driver. <laughs> and on they went. And the last time I saw her was in the pits at uh, uh, Montreal. No kidding. How yeah. many years ago? Oh, it's probably been uh, 10, 15 years ago. Oh, it was that long ago. Yeah, it was. Wow. And by the way, I don't know if the word is banned, TJ from the pits, because of his uh, aggression. Right. Did not surprise me at all. <laughs> no, they, they never banned Bev. 
No. Oh, no. She was always there. Yeah, Bev's a sweetheart. Good for the cameras and nice to the people around yeah, her. Yeah, exactly. TJ and, had a little bit of an edge to him. Yeah. Which, I mean, I just honestly, but, you know that... Yeah, uh, your daughter. Yeah, was, Dan, well, and Danica also yeah, takes yeah. it on honestly, you know, uh, with whatever she gets a little bent out of shape about. Right. Yeah. What else can you tell me about the Indy 500 or your raceway life that people may not know about? Is there some odd story about what has happened? Well, they, I, I just barely got into it, but when I was with um, a Newman's team and they won the championship for the season, I was with the car in the pits, and um, Sebastian Bourdais, who was their driver, uh, everyone came out to celebrate, and I was on the, the pit row uh, with them, and they were spraying champagne and having a big party. <laughs> and my wife, who never went to a race, uh, was back at the hotel watching TV so she could at least tell me who won or who lost. <laughs> and she saw me in the in the barrage of uh, celebration. She's jumping on the bed when I came in <laughs> from the race you know, with my clothes on and everything, the pit attire. And she says, you were on TV. She said, you were on TV. And she's yelling and screaming, and that was a... That was a fun moment for her, yeah. and I thought it was pretty cool. After a while, you have to go, see, I told you it was important. See, I told you it was exciting. I told you it was worth it. Yeah, you really need to come next yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, well, first of all, when's the last time you did it? Last time I did it was 2008. Okay. And have you kept in touch with that community that, you know? I watch every race, and especially the ones where I, you know, was involved with the pits at and— uh, because the people are the same, you know, Bobby Ray Hall and Letterman. Of course, Newman passed away a few years ago. Yeah, but it all looks very, very familiar to you, I bet. It does and feels good, too. When you're doing a uh, Indy 500, for the sake of argument, it could be Daytona, it could be whatever, how long are you usually there? Is that like a 10-day event for you? Well, usually it's it's a five-day event. Okay. Anywhere from three to five days. I was fortunate enough to be working at the college, and we were on a four-day work week. So I would always leave on a Thursday night or early on a Friday morning, fly out to wherever I needed to be, and then flew back Sunday night, had a spoils of victory on my Mondays. <laughs> but that's okay. You'll but sort that's of okay. you'll sort of make it up. Um, my son worked for uh, TV23. He was a cameraman for Aaron Wilson, and right before he moved to Colorado, Aaron Wilson says. If you by any chance get this job before Vets Roll, I will pay for you to fly back so you can go to Vets Roll with me on five buses in Washington, D.C. Really? Yeah. Well, of course, it worked out that he was still here. They broadcast the entire way out there. And the reason I'm telling you this is Aaron, about halfway through the three or four days that they were doing this, he, he sends me this picture you know, they're coming down in the morning. They're waiting in the lobby for all people to sort of congregate from their mm -hmm. hotel rooms. And he's got all of his gear and his camera, and he's sitting on the floor with his legs crossed, just looking up at awe to this man that was sitting in the chair, telling him some kind of a story. You know, what a great picture. That's really, really cool for a 24-year-old and a, I don't know, 85-year-old, yeah. maybe. And so later on that day, he told me the story. It was Bill Hunter. Do you know Bill? I don't believe so. Okay. Bill is 100 years old. He's, of course, a vet. He went on this trip, 
and for 30 years, he did magic in the suites at the Indy 500. Really? What fun. So the big sponsors, you know, they buy the suites, the whole nine yards. He is a hired gun to entertain these people along the way. So sure enough, when they got out to Washington, D.C., they got a microphone and a stage at one of the hotels, and he put on a full magic show for the entire five busloads no of Vets Roll. And he was, what, probably 90? He was 100. 100. Yes. Um, amazing that yeah. he would even anticipate making the trip. Sure. But sharp as a tack and personable. Aaron says you could not have believed his magical timing. What fun. Yeah, it's one thing if you know the mechanics of it yeah. and you've done it for 30 years, but if you're slowing down, you know, it, it's not quite the same. And he goes, Rough no, no. Edges. Yeah, but he goes, oh, no, no. He was right on the button. Right on the button. Huh? Yeah. So just when you think something like the Indy 500 is never going to come up as a topic, yeah, there you go. It does. Go into vets roll. Sure. So anyway, it was sort of fun. Here's the other crisscross that recently happened. Thank you to Janet McGregor over at um, Canterbury Books and Tours. Now, she's the lady that I take the bus into Wrigley Field because they drop you at the curb and they pick you up at the curb. Right. And, you know, Wrigley Field can be a little challenging for parking and all that stuff. Driving in and expense. So I don't have to worry about any of that when I go with her tour. So that's how I know her. So she calls me up one day and she says, I've got this DVD that I want you to see. I don't know how I'm going to get this to you, but you need to see this film. I go, okay. I mean, it's it's one thing for somebody to be pretty adamant about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I get over there and she says, "Um, I got this from Bob over at Imagine That. And he got it from Jeff Swanberg. And I go, "Jeff, Jeff Swanberg? I know a Jeff Swanberg. Well, she got talking and she goes, it's the same Jeff Swanberg. And here's this movie, and wait till you see it. And it's called Stone's Throw. And we're going to talk in depth about this film because it's a whole experience that you went through. And I am dying to hear the Jeff version of it because it's so peculiar. The whole place was. It's so weird. So set the scene, and then I'll throw you some softballs in between to get you on another story. How did How did it come about well the uh, the movie uh, was developed over a longer period of time and it uh, it shows the imagination the ability of people to live on the edge of um, of stardom so to speak and with other people um, the stone front is the name of the band and I was involved with Larry Merriman, who passed away about a year ago. And uh, I was with him in his first band in Rockford, Illinois, after he got back from Vietnam. And after I had been with the band for a while, uh, the band slowly but surely disappeared. And Larry, uh, on a new note, picked up uh, on the ability to, to go to Detroit and bring the band up there. Well, I was in my last year of uh, college at, down at NIU. And what year would this have been? Uh, this would have been 1969. Okay. Summer of 69. Okay. Uh, Woodstock, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, 
So there was a lot of rock and roll and a lot of talk and a lot of action. That was also Haight-Ashbury? Haight-Ashbury. I was in Haight-Ashbury. Were you? I went out to visit an gr- old girlfriend of mine. <laughs> That's the way all those stories <laughs> yeah, start. Yeah, <laughs> she lived in Buena Park. Her father was a, a big deal at um, at Chrysler, and oh. he, he had to move out to California, and of course... His daughter moved with him. Well, that's when we were going together, so I thought, well, what a great chance to go to California. So I packed up and went out to visit her, and I was out there uh, for a couple of weeks watching Jimi Hendrix perform at the Hollywood Bowl uh, right after he performed at uh, the big festival, Monterey Jazz Festival, right before that. So I got to see Hendrix. Uh, and things like that. But anyway, back to the story. We're going to have a couple of wandering moments here. That's okay. That's what, what it's all about. By the what, way, what did you play in the band? I was I was a harmonica and lead vocal. Okay. And right. also played guitar, but not much. Okay. And uh, Jan Capone, Gennario Raffaella Capone, okay. was our drummer. And yes, he was a relative of, of Big Al. Wow. And so Jeep, as we called him, was our drummer. Larry was the lead guitar player. And um, another fellow we had playing the organ. Uh, I can't re- recall his name right off the bat. It's only been 50 years. Yeah, no kidding. Something like and, that. And all of you guys were originating out of Detroit. That's where the, the band's or- origination is. The band's origination was Rockford. Oh, and gotcha. We played in Rockford, played in Madison. Our booker was the same... Uh, guy that booked uh, Cheap Trick early. Oh, my. So um, we went all over the Midwest playing, and I uh, finally broke down. We got a, a bus. My dad and Jeep's Capone's dad went in, and they bought us a school bus. And so we had a big yellow Jelco. <laughs> oh Did you have to major rehab it, too? Major rehab it to fit all the equipment and everything, the big amps oh and stuff like that. So here we are. Uh, I left the band to continue school. Larry and the rest of the guys decided to go to Detroit. Okay. And uh, in Detroit, there was this big house, uh, and the fellow that, that was renting the house at $750 a month, now that's 1969. Figure out what 750 a month is yeah. uh, from then to now. Yeah, and, and this was not just a big house. This was a mansion. This was a mansion built by Garfield Wood. And it was called the Garwood. And I forgot to wear my Garwood shirt today. You actually have one. I have a Garwood shirt that wow. was done at, for our 10th anniversary. We had a 10th anniversary in Ann Arbor uh, where the band, all the band members and everybody that was still alive got together again to uh, have a scenario, a big play uh, where, where we, here we are 10 years later. Wow. And it was just a riot. Good for you guys. We had a great time. So how did you get $750 rent on this gigantic house? Gigantic house. built. And, and how many people were in it? Well, I think there were, but it, when I was living there, I had a closet. Was was my room. <laughs> it was a very large closet. As you can imagine, you know, I'd sleep in my closet. And my brother, who was in the band, actually got a room. Uh and well, it was a hierarchy thing. It was a hierarchy, yeah, <laughs> right. He got there because of me, so uh, basically he owed me one. Um, I went up with them when they first moved everything up to Detroit, and you didn't know much about it until we were on the 
freeway when our bus broke down. We could only drive it 45 miles an hour. That was it. So we got pulled over uh, by the the state police for going too slow. (laughs) We finally managed to get it to a gas station and call our buddies in uh, Ann Arbor to help us get everything into Detroit. And uh, they all came out in a couple of different camping vans and stuff like that, whatever they had, station wagons. And we loaded up all the instruments and all of us and uh, drove to Detroit. And uh, that did you leave the bus? We was, left the bus. You did. The you bus is it? the bus is still there. <laughs> oh, we told God. the owner of the station that we'd be back to repair it, <laughs> and we left the bus. Oh God! It's the last time we saw the bus. Oh. So there went the band transportation for a while, <laughs> until we got to to Detroit. That's when you change your band name to Scrap Metal. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, Scrap Metal. That's Stone Front. Oh God! And uh, so. At any rate, we, we left the, um, the, the, uh, the bus where it was in the gas station, and a couple of years later, my wife and I on our honeymoon journey uh, went up to Detroit to see the house that I had told her about. Mm-hmm. Well, the bus, we stopped where we left the bus off. The bus was still there. No. Yeah, it was still in the gas station, but Just... they, had, they had used it to store tires and stuff in. <laughs> oh, my God. So, you know, I've known I've known people like that where they take those old buses and they turn them into fruit stands. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, that I believe. Sure. Wow, to store tires. Okay, yeah. all right, that's a little different. Sure. So, um, uh, my brother got there. I le- I had left the band, and the band then, as I said, moved to Detroit. They were in New York recording in Hendrix's studio in New York. Whoa. And the ba- their bass player quit, and so Larry called me. And he was our roadie, so to speak. So he knew all the, all of our tunes and the breaks. So Larry says, hey, he said, can your brother make it up here? I said, where are you? He said, New York. I said, I can get him to Detroit, but I doubt New York. And so anyway, I packed up all of my brother's amps. We had a station wagon. With wood panels? With, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> okay. So we drove all of his equipment, and my brother drove him into, to O'Hare, uh, and he got on the plane with his amps and everything, flew to Detroit, unloaded everything. Some of the people had not gone to New York. They were still living at the Garwood. So they came and picked him up with his amps and everything and drove him to New York. And was the urgency because they had sessions scheduled? They had sessions scheduled oh. in Hendrix's studio. Oh, man. And so that got my brother to Detroit and into the band. Wow. Well, he spent over three years in the band. That's how he... He made his way in, into the music business in Detroit. So this guy, Garfield Wood, mm-hmm. has this mansion in Detroit. Right. As I'm watching this film, I'm, I'm thinking automatically, one, how much money do you have to have to, to build a house like this? And then how much money do you have to have to just leave it? And he got his money through development of... The hydraulic, hydraulic lift yeah, and the garbage truck as we know it today. No way. And the Garwood boat industry. Oh, okay. Uh, he loved boats. Garwood was a, a crazy man uh, <laughs> on water. Uh, he set the world speed record. He was the first person on the planet to go over 100 miles an hour in a boat. And, and it, that's, that's on what kind of body of water? Uh, like on the uh, Detroit River where he lived, oh. because the mansion was built right on an island 
he had a huge boathouse that was built on the uh, grounds of the, the house. And besides that, there was a huge Olympic pool in the basement. I remember that. Some, yeah. some people were using that as sort of a sound studio, weren't they, a little bit? That's right. Okay. But uh, anyway, his boathouse harbored huge, uh, these wooden boats. Um, well, and obviously the, the bigger the, the bank account, the bigger the, uh, the toys. Bigger the toys. Oh, yeah, I remember these. That's the Garwood boat. And today, a Garwood boat sells for two hundred and fifty to six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And isn't this something that you would see on American Pickers, where right. somebody's had it for years? Right. And, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. They're all beautiful wooden inboards. They are. And so, I've got a picture of Garfield Wood in his boat. Did you take the picture? No. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> did you ever meet him? You know, I was supposed to meet him. He was coming back to the house. I was up there in 1971, 72. And he was coming back to the house uh, just to see the old house and to see what these hippie kids were doing in it. And we spent a week, week and a half, cleaning every nugget Mm -hmm. of the house Mm -hmm. and getting it in nice shape for the original builder and owner to come back. Well, he died. He had a heart attack on his way back to see the house. Oh, my. And so nobody ever got to meet him or talk to him. But when he sold the house, he went back to Florida. And he had a house just like the Garwood uh, built on a Florida island. So did he just get tired of the house? He was on to something else? right. Oh, my. And and left the house, uh, sold it to a real estate agency. And they're the ones that uh, rented it to a friend of ours who... We got to move into the house with. You ask about the money, seven twenty-five a month for us to rent this forty-six room place, with a with a mansion and a ballroom. Yeah, do the math. A, a mansion <laughs> uh, or a, a, an Olympic pool in a basement. Yeah, um, and probably more than one fireplace would be. Oh yeah, yeah. There, there, I got a pick. Had a pic, Well, the picture of the fireplace is about six feet tall. Yeah. In the dining room. Yeah. And that, or the living room, I'm sorry. That's where all the concerts took place. We charged once a month we had a party, and anybody that wanted to come to the Garwood to listen to the bands uh, could come in for a dollar or two dollars. Is that how you made your That's rent money? That's how we made rent money. Oh, my God. And we'd always have three to 400 people in the ballroom. And you'd probably have six different acts, didn't you? Oh, at least, yeah. There were people, and especially the band. You know, the house band was Stone Front. And uh, they'd play all night. And other bands that had played throughout the community saw in the film. It mentioned a lot of the bands that were there. uh, You know, they'd always come from their gig downtown Detroit over to the house to play. And uh, the Rolling Stones were in town playing I think it was Cobalt Hall, and anyway, they were supposed to come over to the house. Okay. Well, people had heard about this and left the concert to come over to the house oh my. to get a front row seat for the Rolling Stones, <laughs> oh who never showed up. And the how the streets all along the the um, little island bridge to get from the mainland to the were filled with cars. People parked on the bridges, and uh, that's when later in the later years. Uh, the house caught fire, and the fire trucks couldn't get to it because uh, there was no way for them to get over the bridge. It was too small a bridge. But did it catch fire during one of the parties? Where no, there was a it did it, it, okay. it caught fire after the uh, band had left. Oh, I got you. And, okay. um, nobody got hurt. Nobody got okay. hurt, no. Okay. But it did burn. That was one of the reasons that the people left the house. The other reason is 
the band left. The band was touring out east. They started up in Maine and went all the way down to Florida. At one point, uh, the motorcycle gang, the Outlaws, approached uh, Larry. Uh, Meanwhile, the house was in our name, Mm -hmm. the band's name. Mm -hmm. The leader of the Outlaws said, hey, we want to use your house for a party. When can we do it? And Larry said, well, you know, we're going to be gone for about a month touring on the East Coast. We'll leave the house in your um, care, care, quote unquote, while we're gone. Yeah. And they came in, and I've got a huge picture of the outlaw motorcycle gang sitting in front of the house drinking Boone's Farm wine and Budweiser, <laughs> and they trashed the entire house. Oh, no. The uh, the house had, at one time, when it was meant to be one of the largest pipe organs in the United States, it was in the ballroom mm-hmm. area. And the uh, bikers used the wood from the pipes to have a fire in the fireplace. Oh. They trashed the place. What, they looked at it as the biggest bong ever? Is that yeah, sort of yeah, what they're... Yeah, that, that's they it. No appreciation no for appreciation the... No appreciation for anything there. Oh, my God. And wrecked the house. So when they got back, when the band got back, well, the, first of all, there's there's more than just the band there. What happened to the other community The other people, people that were yeah. there, uh, they left to live with relatives in the Detroit area or just get their own house. They had to leave, you know. So that was the end of it. That was the end of uh, oh big people living there. Wow. Yeah. And, wow. oh, uh, speaking of that, there was a kitchen in the basement, uh, and everything was Italian marble. And the kitchen in the basement had a, uh, a, a little, like a, a room elevator that I could fit in, and they'd draw you up through the ropes. It's what brought the food up from the basement to the first and second and third floor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and dummy elevator. Yeah, dummy elevator. Yeah. And the, yeah. you're looking at the dummy. I could ride it. <laughs> and so I did, which was always a fun time. That was a different way to be a waiter, wasn't it? it? W- yeah, it was. <laughs> it really was. You know, one of the pictures, and, and granted, we've got a picture on the cover of the DVD of the film, and you pointed out which one you were on this gigantic staircase. I mean, thank God somebody herded the cats, and got all those people on that stairway for that picture because it's priceless. But then there was another picture that I had probably done a screenshot off the documentary. I'm just sort of thinking to myself, geez, I wonder if Jeff is one of these guys. Well, you were, what, fresh out of college type of thing with very long hair. And I'm going, "Eh, it could be this guy, but he looks a little bit too much like Joe Walsh. And he could be this guy, and sure enough, I at least had it narrowed down to two people, and one of them was you. Yeah, you're good at that. <laughs> Just, you know, because most people had, you know, very, very dark hair. Right. And you've got, like, strawberry blonde type right. of thing back in the day. But uh, I got to hand it to him for getting the footage back in the day so they could later on put this documentary together, but also the still photos because, <laughs> unfortunately— as easy as it is to do today, because everybody's got a phone and a camera in their pocket, they don't do it. And I imagine that back in 1969, it was not easy. Well, I was there. Uh, well, that's when, when our, the band formed with Larry, uh, who has since passed away. But it was 1971 that I was living up there after I graduated from college. Man. And uh, you said the pictures. Um, the pictures are all from... Um, John, just forgot his name for a moment. Oh, he's a professional photographer from he's the newspaper, a, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was the Detroit Press photographer, and he won uh, Photographer of the Year in Detroit wow. uh, twice. 
didn't he sort of take that project on just to sort of he, he follow did. it? He did because he loved the house, and he got and got in free to every gig that you know the band played at. There's an incentive, sure, and uh, you know wound up taking I would say probably a thousand pictures of the Garwood and the people who lived in it. Wow. Uh, he did a couple of eight by tens of my brother and I that I cherish. I've got them at home. There's a, a couple of pictures in the movie of me sitting on the steps. He, he was a great photographer. Wow, good for him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was, it seemed like there was a list. Now, you tell me whether I'm off or not. But when I saw the film, they started rattling off these people that popped into the house. But I'm not honestly sure why they were there. Because of a friend of a friend? Did they come to perform? And if I rattle off this list, you'll be able to tell me who. And why they were there. Van Morrison, Leon Russell, Johnny Winter, Joe Cocker, Rita Coolidge, Sly and the Family Stone, Small Faces, and Alice Cooper. They had performed in downtown Detroit the night before. And people would say, hey, you got to come over to the house. And of course, you got to come to the Garwood. Yeah. And some bands would finish their shows at the Grand downtown Detroit or the East Town, and then repair to the Garwood, where they'd perform a whole nother set. Acts uh, that unexpectedly graced Garwood's ballroom were Van Morrison, Sly and the Family Stone, the Allman Brothers, Cactus, Ted Nugent, the Amboy Dukes, Tim Buckley, Mountain. Leon Russell recorded one of his performances there. Johnny Winter loved the place so much he inquired about running a room. Wow. They said that Alice Cooper was kicked out because he couldn't hold back his vomit. Right. Yeah. It's like, come on, you could be here, but don't mess up the place. That's right. The <laughs> Stones never arrived, uh, and the night was nuts, Merriman said. The traffic was backed up, complete gridlock. People were leaving their cars on Jefferson Street, walking onto the island. One of the neighbors couldn't get to his house, and he had to go to a hotel, and he sent us the bill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I know. It just... just <laughs> I mean, not for him, but right. it's, a, it's a great story. <laughs> that is hilarious. There was another artist who lived with, there with us, and his name is Peter Walker. Okay. And if you look up Peter Walker, he was voted one of the top 10 classical guitarists in the United States hmm. a few years ago. Uh, he'd sit in the ballroom in the middle of the night with no lights on and play his classical guitar. He studied in Spain and was an absolute uh, marvelous guitar player, one of the best I've ever seen. Wow. He uh, did all the music for Timothy Leary. Oh, my. But, you know, you you never know about those names that are just beyond the, the, the spotlight. The pale, yeah. Yeah, you just but, don't know so that. So Peter Walker was there and, and uh, performed there for close to a year. Uh, Peter Walker went back to New York. He lives in a, a, ca- or in a house back in New York near Woodstock. And his whole house burnt down a couple of months ago. And I would hate to think of what he had in music there. Yeah, museum. Museum, Big yeah. time, yeah. Probably on cassettes and reel-to-reels, but right. nevertheless, a museum. Yeah. Obviously, this Stone's Throw is a documentary. It is right. talking about all the things that happened, and it's gathering all these tidbits and whatever. But I learned through this documentary that Stonefront was quote-unquote hired to be able to do a soundtrack for an upcoming movie. The working title was It's Just a Kiss Away. And I, I want to say that the director or the producer, somebody that was in charge of making this happen, was Robin Welsh. Is that right? Not that I'm aware of, but I believe so. Okay. Yeah. And, and they were talking about, 
you know, where somebody goes out and they, they get this band and then they get this movie studio to be behind them and then they get these actors and if everybody says yes at the same time then we can make this happen right and they went down again it's another list which sort of blows you away trying to get this movie happen with this soundtrack they had already gotten yeses for actors right shirley mclean ringo star yes. sissy spacek john voigt Right. Jeff Bridges. Right. Sam Elliott. Right. I mean, this is crazy. They were going to assign those roles to the people in the band and some of the people that lived in the house. So then they could follow them and learn more about the character. Right. Keith Carradine, Linda Ronstadt, and Chris Christopherson. Right. And it never happened? Never happened. Uh, the, the fellows that did the movie, Stone Front's movie, uh, the originator of it, who had the money, and the wherewithal to probably produce it and push it, died early, oh. died unexpectedly. Oh. And I've got pictures. The album that they did was done in uh, the same studio that the Beatles used. You mean Apple Records? Yeah, Apple Records, yeah. Wow. That's who did the, the final soundtrack for the movie. It's an unbelievable spider web of connectability with people in this totally. documentary. Totally, yeah. Yeah. And then for it to all fall apart almost right. as quick as it was put together. Right. Did a lot of these people, um, eh, I got to be careful with, with the words that I use, but these people that, that were part of the community in Garwood, were they musical misfits? Were they circumstantial things? Were they looking for opportunities? What category would this group of musicians fall into? Well, Peter Walker, who lived there, again, one of the top 10 classical guitarists in the United States, he lived for music. Mm-hmm. That's what he did. And uh, there were a couple of other people that were living there who were basically artists that performed throughout the Detroit community. They were like a, a local local duet. Now, there were children living at the Garwood also. I saw that. So right. It's, so it's more of a birds of a feather flock together That's type right. thing? That's right. Totally. Wow. And the uh, one of the guys that was living there uh, got in his boat and tat- canoed across the river <laughs> to work at uh, one of the junior colleges there. That was his commute to work? That was his commute to work. He'd get <laughs> okay. in his canoe and <laughs> canoe commute to uh, work across the river downtown Detroit. He'd get the other side and take a bus. Because he didn't own a car. Not many people owned a car. One of the people who did own a car, uh, who stayed at the Garwood for a couple of months, was a fellow that dug oil wells. And don't I, know that name. He owned a he owned a a new Jaguar, okay. which was always entertaining to everybody. Here comes Willie. You know he, he's back. He's finished with his six months at the oil. Oh, and he had money to burn. Yeah, and he had money to burn. He'd worked for six months. Oh. You know, on on uh, the worker, 24 hours a day. Yeah, the riggers. Six days a week, the yeah. riggers, yeah. You know, that's very reminiscent of how Alaska fishermen work. Yeah. Because they live out of a knapsack. You know, all of a sudden, they'll have a pretty good-sized blade and a pistol in their right. knapsack. That's right. And they get paid in cash, and they hit the shores, and everybody wants to separate them from their money. That's right. And then they, you know, filter back into Seattle and Portland and all sure. those different people. and Which are great times out there. Yeah. Loved it out there. So when you did the reunion, how many people showed up? 
ballpark figure there were 50 of us. That's a pretty good sized number. It is, and it was it was held at a nice restaurant okay. with a big ballroom where they had a band set up where all the guys could go in and and jam and, so and play li- and have a good time. So literally you could just step up randomly and do it to it. That's right. That's the way most reunions should be. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, and I've got pictures of some of the guys that uh, that drew the, the Garwood shirt, which is incredible. They uh, made the design? They made the design. Oh. And one of the guys did it on a van, a newer van, and he drove from California back to Detroit. And it said, Garwood, you know, we're coming back. It was, <laughs> Watch out. It, it was a wonderful time. You know? Wow. Good for you guys. And yeah. what, what year must have that have been? That was, well, it was 23. Uh, what do we got back to 13? Okay. All right. So Something along that. Yeah, 10, 10 years 12, ago. 13. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty impressive to hunt down those people. Oh, yeah. And get them to come. Right. And I think everybody, uh, we all had to put in 20 bucks to reserve the place. Well, that's so, a small price to pay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, me, you know, I'm full-time uh, teacher at, at the college in town, so <laughs> it's a little bit different than being back there totally broke. Yeah, hey, i got to uh, ask you, too. Did um, Stonefront press vinyl, or did they just do tours and they got their money that way? Did just, they ever record? Just tours and got their money like that. They did some recording. I had some uh, vinyl uh but I've since displaced it, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they, but they did do recording sessions yeah. outside of that one guy, right? With your, was it your brother that went into the Jimi Hendrix studio? Yeah. Well, but, the whole band was in there. Oh, the whole band. The oh, whole band was in there. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, I didn't get that impression. Yeah. Well, sorry. I thought he was just filling in for somebody. Well, no. So that that that's when they offered him a full time job. Oh, I see. So they okay. said to my brother, you know, can you be with us full time? We need a bass player, and you know everything. <laughs> And my brother said, I don't know. He said, I'm a senior at Guilford. <laughs> so, and they're going, we don't know what that means. <laughs> we don't know what that means. And um, so my dad and I went up to Guilford and talked to one of his counselors, Ms. Radcliffe, I believe her name was. And you basically explained the situation we, to we her? We told the situation to her, said, look, my brother's in Detroit living with a rock and roll group and wants to graduate, doesn't want to quit school. Can he do his work from there and send it back to Guilford to his teachers? And she said, yes. She said, we'll, we'll do that. I said, look, you know, the kid might have a career in music or this or that. And I said, it, it, it would, wouldn't hurt him a bit. And I said, you know, I'm, a, I'm an educator mm-hmm. or will be. I said, I'm a college graduate. And I said, my wife is a teacher here in Rockford. And she said, well, she said, okay. And they did, and they sent all of his assignments up to the Garwood, and he did them up there and sent them back to Rockford. Doubly hard to do with no technology. Right, right. Wow. And so he graduated from Guilford with his class. Crazy. Yeah, no, he was up there in March and went March, April, May, and June. Did he come back and walk graduation? No. Okay, just curious. (laughs) (laughs) He was walking the stage up at the Garwood good for him yeah. for for looking that as an option and then good for you and your wife to sort of mentor him and sort of keep him on track as educators i tried yeah you well know. i know i mean yeah. you can only do so much with your brother but you get right? that yeah yeah you understand yeah, especially that especially he was 5 years younger than i was right i i graduated from niu and he graduated from guilford the same week crazy how many years were you at rockford business college 42 years I taught there, yeah. And what have you been doing since? 
I retired nine years ago. Okay. I do a lot of photography and have uh, had a lot of uh, items done along those lines. I do pictures for my wife's book. Okay. She was the first poet laureate in Rockford. Whoa. Yeah, last year. So I'm very proud of her for that. Wow. Are you still a columnist for different outlets? No. Because didn't, didn't you do that at one time, somewhere along the line? Columnist? Uh, like, yeah. Like I, a guest columnist. Yeah, for... I, I wrote the newsletter for the, the college for years and years. Okay. And then occasional column for the Register Star. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's what yeah. you've seen just, me. De- just depending on the topic, right? Depending on the topic, yeah. You sound like you've kept busy. I have. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Mean, I mean, honestly, as much as people are looking forward to retirement. Right. Once they get there, yeah. well, now what do I do? Now what do I do? <laughs> and lots of people don't ever figure that out. Yeah. And if you figure it out and you do it at the pace that you want it to be, right. and now you can pick and choose, well, I like writing more than I do cars, or I like cars more than I do photography. Right. Well, then pick it. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or just, mix them. Or mix them and do moderation and, and all. Yeah. That's, that's exactly it. So right. God bless you for figuring that out, because... Most don't. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and take your interesting past <laughs> yeah, and make use of it. I mean, I could see you as being that kind of guy that goes into Stockholm Inn or the Potato Shack and you mm-hmm. sit down and all of a sudden, an hour and a half later, you've got stories that are connected to people somehow right. that walking in, you would have had no clue. Right. None. They're all strangers That's to you right. at the beginning. And then all of a sudden, well, I know so-and-so, because we all know how small, but yet how big Rockford is. Right. And this proves it. That is true. That you have sort of reached out as far as Detroit and New York, and then all of a sudden come back again. Are you a Rockford native? I am. And my wife and I have had the opportunity to travel all over the world. Yeah. Been in 23 countries. Have you really? Yeah. Good for you. Morocco, Istanbul, Turkey. You just picked the location on a whim? We'd take off since we were both teaching. Uh, I'd ask for a summer off, and she'd get the summer off. She taught public schools for a long time. Okay. We'd just get on the Icelandic flight from Chicago that landed in Luxembourg, and we had our Eurail Pass tickets for three months. So we'd get on a train and take off. You would be gone for three months. Three months. And you're just winging it? $5 a day, just winging it. Oh, my God. Yeah. But you know what? If you weren't at the Garwood, you wouldn't probably have that spirit in you. That's right. You wouldn't know. I mean, you could could probably know how to do it, but for a lot of people, they wouldn't dare do it. Right. I think think they wouldn't dare do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we'd sleep in in a train station. We'd sleep in uh, a bus wherever we were. So you were thankful to have a yurt? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is living. This is this is high on the hog. No, $5 a day, we got the book. And so we pretty much cut our expenses of $5 a day, which bought you enough cheese and wine to live. And at the end of three months, you go, okay, this is over. Now let's figure out how to get home. Well, I got to O'Hare the, la- the first time we were gone. I got to O'Hare and... I had a, a stocking cap full of change. Okay. I had no money. I had no folding money. And so I went up to the place where you transfer your money to get American mm-hmm. to Deutschmark and Lira mm-hmm. and whatever. And I said, hi. I said, how much do I have? And the guy looked at me and he laughed. He said, we don't take coins. At all. At all. 
I said, you're kidding me. He said, no. He said, how do you think we're going to transfer coins back and forth between the countries oh, well, with the true. weight? Yeah. I said, yeah. okay. He said, look, he said, go down to uh, uh, the German airlines and just tell the people you've got, you know, $30, $40. Uh, you got 10 bucks. I'll give it to you. And we did. And I found somebody that was willing to give me $20 for a, you know, big stocking cap full of change. And that's how we got back to Rockford on the bus. That's crazy. But it was the truth. But what a great story. Great story, I yeah. mean, you couldn't make that up if you wanted to. No. No mm. folding money. That's no what amazes money. me. Yeah, well, it amazed me too because I thought, oh, man, I got $20, $30 in change here. I'll just go get my Deutsche Marks or my yeah. dollar bills. or Yeah, I'm, I'm good. And then all of a sudden you're not. All of a sudden I'm not going on. How <laughs> do I get home? And you're just in Chicago. Yeah. But that seems a, a world away, even right. though you were a world away. Right. But if you don't have the dollars, you don't well, have the dollars. Well, I didn't have the dollars hitching back from California one summer, and we got picked up by the by the Reno, Nevada cops. Okay. My buddy and I, who lived at the Garwood with me, you know, we, we, we hitchhiked from Detroit to Toronto, and Toronto to British Columbia, Vancouver, British Columbia. Okay. And then we hiked down to Las Gatos, California, where some of our friends from the Garwood were living. And on our way back, we thought we'd hitchhike back. So we left Las Gatos, California to hitchhike back to Rockford with no money at all, which didn't surprise us but because you... when we started in Detroit, we had $10 and a carton of Winston's. Wow. To get us from Detroit to Las Gatos, California. But no matches. <laughs> <laughs> but no matches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no matches. You're almost there. You're almost, almost there. Right. And But, you know, honestly, it's a different world back then. Right. You know, you were probably talking, what, 71, 72? That's somewhere, right. Somewhere in that area. Yeah. Look at the origination of Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles. Oh, yeah. And you hear very similar stories. Right. Where they said, I don't have a pot to piss in. Right. But we have a guitars. But we have a guitars. And we have talent. Yes. And Linda knows somebody. That's right. You know, whether it be Jackson Brown or J.D. Souther or whoever. And then all of a sudden it starts to mesh. mesh. And money doesn't matter. Right. Because no. all of a sudden it's meshing and people are yeah. paying to hear you. That's that's why we left the Garwood, my buddy and I. We didn't have any money. You know, we weren't working with the band. And mm -hmm. this one fellow that we were living with almost died of an overdose. So we oh. both thought, let's get out of here. Yeah. So one morning we just... Had somebody take us to the outskirts outskirts of Detroit. Seriously, and, and dumped you? And dumped us off by the river where you get across to go into uh, Canada. We can get from here to Vancouver. And did you have the idea that if I go west with our talents, we'll hook up with somebody and still continue the musical career? No, we were absolutely hung up on just getting down to Los Gatos, California, because we knew a few people down there. Oh, gotcha. And could stay there. Okay. Maybe they could get you jobs. Yeah. And that, yeah, right. that type of thing. Right. Holy cow. Well, you've got you've got bigger cojones than I ever thought. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to Pete, cuz I could not have imagined that. Well, it but, was fun. You, well, I yes, you know, those stories are always fun when you're 25. That's right. They're not so much fun when you're no, 45. I wouldn't do it today. <laughs> oh, no, hell no. Not no on, way. not on a dare. No. Wow. Well, Jeff Swanberg, thank you so much for calling me back and coming in the lending of the movie. It was just so much fun to be able to see it and know that somebody that I knew was somehow connected to it and that I'd hear the backstory uh, sooner than later. 
Um, I really, really appreciate it. I wish you all the luck. I got a feeling we'll see either your photography or your writing or something crop up in the soon future. And, I hope so. And, and now, with this podcast, you're going to be heard in the 23 countries that you once visited. <laughs> How do you like that? Well, I hope they let me back in. That's, that's right. <laughs> Jeff, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for all your time. Thank you for joining us in the Storyteller Studio with Tim Larson and Liz Wilder, where everything begins with the story.